HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're spotlighting the people who prepare our meat before it reaches our plates. We hear from whole animal butchers, the brains behind a meat vending machine, California cattle ranchers, and a master of charcuterie who isn't using meat at all. It's like a smoked and grilled uh, center stock of the broccoli, and then it gets uh, finished with some mustard barbecue sauce and sauerkraut. Ranching and farming being as difficult as it is, you know, it's just one thing after another. And at some point, you just give up. I had a wild idea that if I learned butchery, maybe I could start to be kind of a link in the supply chain. Listen to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Jen Ross and Christina Ross Blankfein, co-founders of Swoon, zero sugar cocktail mixers and syrups, and now ready-to-drink sugar-free lemonades. Swoon's mixers are available in 35 stores. Oh, that would be great. I'm going to start again. (laughs) Uh, And I pronounced everyone's name right. Honestly, shockingly. Okay. (laughs) My name is like a a landmine of issues. So I was sitting there being like, wow. (laughs) I've had other landmines. Okay. Today, I'm speaking with Jen Ross and Christina Ross Blankfein, co-founders of Swoon, zero sugar cocktail mixers and syrups, and now ready to drink sugar-free lemonades. Swoon's mixers are available in 3,500 stores across the United States, including Wegmans, Meyer, The Fresh Market, and Select Whole Foods. And the new lemonades are currently available in various New York specialty stores online, and it's growing every day. So hi, ladies. Welcome, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. 
Um, okay, so I've been told that when I have two guests, it's good to sort of address questions to you guys individually so that you know who I'm hoping to answer. If I ask the wrong person the wrong question, <laughs> just say I'm handing it over to her. Um, but I feel like I'm so used to being in a room with everyone that I can kind of make eye contact, but obviously there's no eye contact um, happening. So um, I guess, Jen, I'll start with you. Um, how did you guys meet? Where did Swoon come from? Um, you know, tell me the the background story a little bit. Yeah. So we met at a bar, which really makes <laughs> a lot That's of perfect. Sense. And then we started as a cocktail mixer company, but we actually had a mutual friend who actually went to Spence. Allie, I went to Spence. and Oh my gosh. And so one of my best friends who then went to college with Christina. So yes, all full circle here, but we had met at a bar, reconnected at business school. We were seated next to each other and honestly just became kind of fast friends. Oh. It wasn't a business relationship. It was us truly just being friends. And, right. you know, we, we started what was then called Be Mixed because we were sick of drinking vodka sodas and wanted a drink that didn't have a ton of sugar or calories. I'm also type one diabetic. So, right. you know, it goes really way beyond that. I, I was diagnosed, you know, when I was six years old and feel like I like grew up, you know, not being able to have the apple juice on play dates, the cake yeah. at birthday parties, kind of all of the, or, you know, like the gummies in, in, in the lunchbox, all of those things. And all yeah. about this, like, oh my God, like, feeling like you're missing out and like wanting to be part of things and food and drinks, like really bring people together. And so mm -hmm. it really was a personal need that, you know, I was ordering a drink and like putting in five limes and still being like, this just like, isn't great. This is like right. not what I want to be celebrating with. And so that it really started something that Christine and I wanted for ourselves and realizing that there really wasn't anything on the market that didn't have sugar, you know, that it was sort of the height of the craft cocktail movement. Right. And, but all of those had full of sugar. And so for us, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just type one diabetics. It was like two thirds of adult Americans are pre-diabetic. Right. Right. And, and so we really wanted something that would go beyond just something that we wanted, but kind of could give everyone the, that celebratory feeling without feeling like they had to compromise and just make better health choices. So you guys were you were in business school together when you met and at the bar and became friends or you met in college and then ended up at business school together or did you not met, no so we met at a bar we met at a right. bar after college and then okay. we went to business school together oh that's great we started right. all this so yeah. together got it together. and did you go to business school thinking that you like were you both kind of at business school thinking you were going to be entrepreneurs or did you have other plans in mind so I went in this gen thinking I always knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. Both Christine and I started our careers after college at banks. And mm -hmm. while it was definitely a great learning experience and really learning the fundamentals, I think we both wanted something more entrepreneurial, more startupy. I didn't go into business school saying, I'm going to go, I'm going to start something. This is what I want to do. But kind of just knowing that I, at some point in my life, right. I would like to start something. And Christina, I, I'm gathering since Jen and I went to the same elementary school, she's a New Yorker. 
Um, <laughs> yes, you, I am not. <laughs> <laughs> um, where did you grow up and did you plan on, you know, what, what was your plan? Why, why business school for you? Yeah, so I grew up in Florida and in Boston. And when I went to business school, I actually went to law school and business school together. Mm -hmm. um, I was fortunate enough to to do a JD longer stint in the in the graduate school program. And I really went in with this mindset of I had previously been doing uh, microfinance at City, which was a for profit mindset around microfinance of how do you really include social businesses and have social impact into something that has a bottom line that suits a large banks, a global banks, uh, PNL. And right. so from doing that, one of the things that I was really interested in was sort of the intersection of policy and business. And so that's where the law school and business school together came in around sort of structures and, and rethinking structures to, to make a better world. So I can't say that I went in quite as entrepreneurially focused as Jen did. Um, but definitely one of the benefits of a longer stint in grad school is you have time to think and time to try things. I thought you were so, going to say, and time um, to drink. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, think. fortunately, in grad school, you get to drink a lot of alcohol. And so this idea oh, just man. kind of naturally oh, came. I didn't realize quite how dorky I am. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, I kind of gathered from get, like getting two degrees at the same time. Not dorky. <laughs> Let's call it um, intellectually curious. Sure. So, sure. Um, okay. That's, so that's nice of you, but, but I, know, <laughs> I, I know where my true stripes are. Um, but I guess it sort of did lead us in a in a way, because where we really came down on on starting this was from this really higher sense and mission around how do we take sugar out of society and how do we look at our food system and think, gosh, sugar really is delicious. I will mm -hmm. start by saying that it is a totally feel good. It is completely aligned with all celebratory moments for a reason. Um, there's sort of, we're, we're trained to have this happiness around it, mm -hmm. um, but it also is really just not healthy for you. And no matter how you look at different health trends, different diet trends, certainly, um, no one ever has the advice that says have more sugar. And but so, in 2015, that was a little bit ahead of its time. You're hundred percent right? right, Allie. And I, and again, it, it sounds sort of you know, all of a heart mission, but I, it really was. And obviously Jen's personal story um, kind of leads us there naturally, but it just felt to us, we want to take sugar out of our society. Where do we start? And frankly, the the mixers and the drink side of thing in a way was because it was this kind of forgotten category, this place where we were in 2015, you're right that at sugar vilifying sugar was ahead of its time. However, the whole grocery store, all of our um, food choices had really started to slide healthy, right? This was when mm -hmm. everybody was a foodie, where Whole Foods was no longer the only place that you were finding these cutting edge trends of right. um, healthier foods, but really good food became synonymous as healthy food mm -hmm. and farm to table and, and sort of all the slow um, food movement had already happened. But right. in drinks, there still was a lot to be done. And, and yeah. even the soda has been on the chopping block for a while. We definitely found with the mixer section, it was this part of people's lives where it was like, and blah, 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 blah. You right. know, kind of let's ignore that piece. And we really wanted to take that head on. And obviously, as we've grown in the business, as we've understood our customers better, we've realized that it was a great place to gather a foothold um, 
to learn and to, again, develop a customer base, but that taking sugar out of society goes far beyond, obviously, the mixer part of your week and can really transcend to morning, noon, and night. And we now launch products to address all of those times. Right. So I, I do, I want to talk about that because there are a couple things that happened, right? I mean, you renamed it, which I'm curious <laughs> about and interested in. You launched a completely new category. I'm kind of curious around that um, because I think a lot of times, I think I've heard so many founders say, you know, I started with this tea sachet and I ended up, you know, with chocolate or, you know, we were called this or this was our original packaging. And I think that founders are so um, nervous that if they, that, that iteration is a sign of something not working and I feel like iteration is actually a sign of something working um, and just figuring out who your consumer is and what they want and how they want it sort of sold to them. So I think you might be my first guest on that renamed. Um, and I'm kind of curious about that process for you and sort of the thinking behind it. So who wants to take that one? <laughs> Yeah, this is Jen. I mean, well, okay. luckily, I mean, I, I, I'm happy that no one else has had to go through that process because <laughs> it was not pretty, to yeah. say the least. Um, but we did really have great partners that kind of helped us at every step of the way and to make it as easy as possible. But as we said, we really started this, you know, as a personal need, really focusing on cocktails. Neither of us had food or beverage experience. So we mm -hmm. didn't kind of come into this being like, oh, we want to do, you know, build all of this. It was like, oh, right. okay, cocktails, like we can do, or, you know, cocktail mixers, we can do this. And But so Jen, sorry to interrupt you. That's actually a really good point that I want listeners to think about because for instance, like we are not, the company that I have formed is not a sauce company. Right. Like, because the, the goal eventually, although it sounds like insane to me right now, the goal is to have a lot of different categories. So when you are, if you're thinking right now as a listener about naming your company, don't call it, you know, Jen's cookies, right? Correct. Because if you call it Jen's cookies and you do really well selling cookies and in two years you're selling crackers, then Jen's cookies isn't going to make sense. So there, you've seen a lot of companies go from like someone's tortillas to someone's foods or, mm -hmm. you know, but um, it's just a good point to keep in mind. Obviously you, you had, you called it be mixed. That made sense for mixers. Uh, you know, I can see why maybe it didn't make sense going into other categories, but I just wanted to call that out because it is very good advice. Okay. Yes. And, and, and definitely. So, as we then started to listen to customers and it really came from, you know, chefs and bartenders saying, well, if you guys could make a simple syrup that was flavor neutral, that was viscous and, you know, monk fruit based, like we would use this. And mm -hmm. so we again kind of continued down the path in the cocktail category. But as soon as we started to have that product, we really realized how many kind of 
other areas it could be used in coffee. The simple syrup. The simple syrup. Coffees, teas, really anything that you're adding a sweetness to. And -hmm. it really was from there, we're like, okay, this goes way beyond cocktails. Like there's something here that we can use and want to really build a brand to offer people, you know, the great taste of sugar without it being sugar. And so that's when we decided, okay, B-Mix worked but it no longer works. So we did start down the path of rebranding, renaming, which like I said, was not so pretty, but you know, and everyone was like, oh man, are you sure you really want to do it? And we did feel confident that we did. So, and again, I think we look back and like, even like looking at like the very first iteration of the product, like we did our first label on 99 designs, like Mm -hmm. Each stage, it's like, oh my gosh, why don't we do this sooner? But yeah. when you're in it, it it definitely feels like you feel so tied to it. They're like your babies, so you don't yeah. want to make changes, but you also want to make changes at the same time. Well, and, and we- you don't want to lose. Sorry, sorry, Christina, but you don't you don't want to lose whatever momentum you have. So, like every time we kind of refresh or iterate, you know, my logo's from 2012. It needs a cleaner upper. There is no question, but it's like, I'm nervous because Mm -hmm. I feel like people might, you know, associate it. So how do you keep the the bones, but, you know, but kind of improve where it needs to be improved. And a name change is like, you're not even necessarily keeping the bones. You're like ripping it down to the, to the studs. (laughs) Christina, what were you going to say? No, no, I think something similar to to where you're heading, Ali. I think you know we we went into this and we had a great partner. Uh, we ended up working with Emily Hayward and Red Antler, and we had really admired her and a lot of her work mm-hmm. ahead of time, and so really got we felt like the the best of the best to help us think through how to really get at a more soulful name and and a spirit that we really cared about in the in the process. And so I think one of the things you have to trust is that your product is also as fantastic and your customer value proposition is as fantastic as the brand is. Yeah. So one of the things we really focused on at the time was as we were talking a little bit offline before we've always had DTC. And so that we knew would be our easiest customer base to bring along with us. And so far as we could really over communicate and really talk about um, what was happening from beforehand through the change and afterwards. However, being on shelf was going to be much harder. And so it really came down to relationship again with our retailers, our distributors, our brokers to signpost this really early on and bring them through the process uh, with us so that there were no surprises to anyone. And we did end up going with the decision to add a sticker onto our products on Mm -hmm. shelf that said, that we were really mixed with the previous logo on it and did so for kind of twice as long as we normally have products sit on shelves to make sure that we would get some carryover. But I think one of the things you have to trust again is that people are not just coming to you because of the brand, but also because of the product. And we didn't make as many changes there um, in terms of the value proposition or the flavors. So we, we felt like we would be able to kind of rewind them back, even if we, confused customers a bit. And then you also trust that what you're building is bigger than what you've built. And yeah. So I think that, that's sort of the key that goes back to where you were at before of is, is iteration failure or is iteration a sign of success? And I think, again, you have to trust that it, regardless of where you end up net out on that, is that you're going through this change because you see 
the future will be bigger with this change than not making the change. And so we definitely had that moment where we looked at our team, kind of held hands and jumped off a cliff and you take a deep breath and you just commit to, to making it work afterwards, knowing that there will be very bumpy patches. Yeah, that's great. They're actually there. I just was like taking like voracious notes as you were writing. And I have a lot of things I want to break down because I think this is actually going to be really, really helpful for people. I want to take a break. And then when we come back, we can just like talk straight for the next, because now I'm like, when do I need to take a break? So we're going to take a quick break (laughs) and then we're going to come back and we're going to just talk about all of it. So we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm back with Jen Ross and Christina Ross Blankfein, co-founders of Swoon. Okay. So before the break, we were talking about, you you know, Christina, you said that you guys have always had a direct-to-consumer channel, which is the easiest, obviously, and the cleanest, and you own your consumer that way, and you can communicate directly with her and explain exactly what you're doing and why. And then you have, you know, 3,500 stores across the United States where you are basically asking those buyers to swap out something they already have on the shelf for something with a new name um, and new re- and new branding. I guess one of my questions is, and you said you gave them a lot of time, which clearly is important because my guess is, do they need to sell through what's on the shelf? Like how do they do the timing on their part were there any specific conversations you had where they told you what, how challenging it would be for them that struck you? Um, you know, what, what were the bumps exactly? And what would you say smoothed the path with the retailers? Christina, I'll let you take this since you started it. Of course. So relationships relationships, relationships, as much as I know that people think about the, the real estate, um, location, location, location. I think we feel like in business, it's relationships, relationships, relationships. So it really was over communicating. It was really, um, bringing again, our buyers, our distributors, our brokers along the process with us. As you said, 
we have a DTC business. We also market directly to our customers to enrich the distribution that we have in stores. But our buyers at our retailers, our brokers, our distributors, also our our customers. The brokers obviously work hand in hand with us differently, but there are you know our buyers and our distributors really are our customers too. Yeah, for sure. Thinking about what matters to them which is, you're absolutely right. It's not having customer confusion. It's making their end customers' lives easiest. They don't want to have a messy shelf. They don't want to have extra products. So it was looking at our inventory as closely as we could um, alongside our distributors, oftentimes understanding buying patterns and having a stop ship date that is far before um, our start ship date enough mm-hmm. that they sell through the product and that they don't end up with product on shelves or the distributors in their warehouse that doesn't align with the marketing that we're putting out and the new product that's coming in of a new brand. And so it was really looking closely at those pieces. But look, we, the hardest part is getting it right. We Mm -hmm. are a small company. We don't buy data, um, which means that our data that we get, our sell through data, our point of sale data is pretty, yeah. Mediocre, <laughs> yeah. And I guess um, yeah. a lot of the times, and so it it definitely was a process. It it did end up having expenses against it, and buying back of product, and finding yeah. other ways to repurpose it. I'm not going to say it was totally seamless, um, but we did get very good advice again from our brokers, our distributors, and our retailers of how to to make it as smooth as possible. And I can't emphasize enough the value in. People just, you know, people can't solve problems they don't know exist. And so just giving as much information, not trying to hide anything, being open about it, and also being okay with things not being perfect. I think one of the things that we also struggled with was you can't thread the needle perfectly. And so at some point to try to get the inventory cranked down to absolute zero across all the channels isn't going to happen. And so the time and effort to do that is misplaced and it's worth instead to think through how to sell it through on, you know, promotions and discounts ahead of the time and be okay with a little bit of a gap on shelf for the retailers who preferred that, be okay with product next to each other that didn't have the same name for retailers who cared about that. And again, really try to understand where their values were and pain points were and work around that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's what you're saying is just, it's so helpful. And I've said it before on the show and I will continue to say it. And I think almost every guest I have sort of says some version of it, but you, the, these, all of these like partners are truly partners. You know, the, the, the retail buyer who's giving you slots on the shelf sees him or herself as a partner in your business. They have 10 slots to give. They're giving you four of them. That's that's a trusting relationship that they have. And I think that a lot of times, and especially in like the last couple of years with the sort of like entrepreneurship worship, kind of the founder as like the egomaniac thing, that's, we've kind of, we've messed up a little bit because no broker, no distributor, no retailer is perfect. But if we look at them as roadblocks to our consumer, we've already failed. If we look at them as partners in reaching a mutual consumer, then we at least are set up for good dialogue. That doesn't mean we're not going to always have issues because we always are, because it's a really clunky business. Um, 
But I think your point about relationships is key. And I think, you know, sometimes, you know, partly we we kind of are annoyed that they don't call us back most of the time. And the other time we're kind of scared if there is a problem to tell them because we think they're going to ding us. Uh, the truth is these guys see so much every day that like your rebrand is not the biggest problem for them, you know, at all. Um, even, you know, I mean, we had a, we had like a weird mispackaging kind of recall in like not bold letters. Um, and similarly, our partners were incredible because we over communicated and it was scary. It was scary. Um, Okay. So you guys not only rebranded um, what was already on the shelf, but you launched a totally new category. Um, and you did that all kind of at the same time. Jen, is that accurate? <laughs> Basically. Um, so yeah. we rebranded the mixers and relaunched on our website March 10th, which mm -hmm. was basically right before the world fell off a cliff. Right. And so it was a really interesting time to be doing that and to kind of, you know, get it out there, work with these partners in the, that were kind of being so overwhelmed. The grocery world was right. definitely one that was being pulled from all sides. So it's like, you know, of course they have so many things on their plate. Like this isn't even just trying to get, you know, slots, on, you know, to get more facings, like they're dealing right. with out Toilet of stock. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so it was a really interesting time there. And then it was, you know, and the, and the reason that we got to the lemonade was again, really from customer feedback. It was us right. out there sampling the swoon, simple syrup as a lemonade of right. doing, you know, what like water, lemon juice, and Swoon Simple Syrup. And it was the customer saying like, why don't you guys bottle this? Why don't you can it? And yeah. so we're like, great idea. So it you know was a so lot. Funny? I had Sylvie from Just Date Syrup on and she kind of went in the reverse direction because she started off making like chutneys and she was trying to get them. Do you know this? She was trying to get them to be less like sugar and so she kind of extracted a date syrup and people, when she was sampling, were like, why don't you just sell the syrup? <laughs> she literally- <laughs> we, know that, but we, we know that brand and, and they've done awesome things. Well, yeah. It's just kind of funny because you guys have basically gone like, like um, which I just think is adorable. Um, so, so this brings up a bunch of interesting things, right? Because it brings up the fact that you are out there sampling is shouldn't shouldn't just be and obviously we're not doing so much of that now but when we are back at doing it like you every founder should be sampling the hell out of their products not just because they're trying to push it out but because they're trying to collect as much research as they can like you learn so much just by being out there talking to consumers and in your case you learned like there's a whole product that you could be doing that probably, I mean, it, I'm sure it was hard to, to, you know, to figure out, but it, you already had the most important part. We, we definitely agree, Allie. And we look at this from even a onboarding perspective for our team, where everyone who joins the team actually, again, when this was uh, a possibility right. and we assume will be again, everyone on the team did a stint of doing demos in stores. Yeah. And we think that there's no 
better way to get a really clear, crisp sense as to what the customer is thinking or saying or or just how they interact with the product or what you end up, of course, every time a new customer comes up, you say something a little bit refined based on the conversation you had previously. Right. And there's nothing quite like being in the field to understand the product and the customer interaction like a demo. And so we've actually routinized that as part of the onboarding process for our team because of everything that you're saying. And I I feel like I have to give a major shout out. I would be remiss not to. Um, A lot of these decisions were also done by Whitney Taylor, who is a woman on our team who's basically our third partner. And a lot of everything that happens has been in the field. She started out really pounding the pavement in the field and now runs our sales. So I do think there is a lot to be said um, from also not just the the demo piece, but doing those initial in store, you know, door to door sales mm-hmm. that kind of only New York does in the way New York does things. Yeah, um, that really sharpens a, a, a sense of how much to value the customer relationships and see everybody in the retail process as a customer. And so, March tenth, you guys did you know? Hi, this is us now. This is our new look. This is the thing. And then when did you launch the lemonade? We launched the lemonade in August. And okay. so it was not so soon after. And it was one of those like kind of within those few months, it was like, should we do this? What's the world going to look like? We think it's one thing a week later, it's something else. And so then we finally said, okay, we're going to do this. We know that this is a product that our customers want. We're super excited about this. Mm-hmm. And what is it going to like, what does this launch look like? Definitely different than what we would have envisioned before, but right. we just wanted to kind of get it out, get there, it out there and and kind of exactly what you said. We used to do so many demos, so many samplings, and it was like, okay, that doesn't exist anymore. So how do right. we get it to people? How do we get it in their homes in, in different and creative ways? So before we get it into people's homes, I'm kind of curious about, you know, you you guys have had a, you know, a very sturdy supply chain, I mean, you're supplying, you know, 4,000 stores, right? With your Mm -hmm. syrups and your, and your mixers. And now you're going into ready to drink. Um, Did you have to find new co-packers? Are you able to stay with the same distributors? Do you have the same buyers at the stores? Like, or are you basically starting sort of from scratch in terms of like supply chain production distribution, like the, the back half? you know, the the behind the curtain stuff. Yeah, it was a combination of both. I would say from a, excuse me, supply chain perspective, a lot of it is same suppliers, but some are new given that it's, it is new products. So had to kind of go out, vet those, find those. And then from a co-packing perspective, it is new because one, we were in glass bottles and then we were going into a can. So it wasn't like switching, you know, into a different size bottle. It was a totally different, you know, vehicle. So that was all different can, you know, the can world is completely different than the bottling world. So learning all of that, the capacity there, all of those things was new. Thankfully, it wasn't the first product we'd done. So we knew more questions to ask, right. more, you know, kind of how to navigate around it. But but that was definitely different. But I think having done it before, we were able to kind of build things, even if they were a little bit different, had a little bit more insight into going into it. And yeah, for cool. sure. I mean, meeting a co-packer at, you know, on day one versus like year five, 
you know, you're going to be a completely different, you know, other side of the table, I would imagine. And how hard was it to get the formula right for you guys? Like, it, you know, sampling lemonade is different than like, are you laughing because it was hard? Yes. No, well, it was hard, especially during quarantine. I think my family would laugh. Our fridge was just filled with samples. Yeah. And it was, you know, if you think back to also some of these months, like you, we were not seeing anyone. So it was like right. kind of grabbing whoever was home and your fit might, you know, was with my family, having them taste everything. So it really was different than our typical kind of R&D process of right. getting there and having to do it in isolation, having to ship stuff not do focus groups, things like that. So it, it was really, really different. I'm literally just th- this morning, I opened my fridge and found like a sample like pushed way in the back from like, right. <laughs> but so it definitely looked very different than how it has. Um, but you guys up. got it done. I mean, if you were still in the tasting process in quarantine and you launched August 1, like we finished our all our R&D on our 2021 flavor, like two weeks ago. So, I mean, maybe it's just like a, it's a co-packer needs time thing, but you guys got it done pretty quickly. If that, if you were still tasting and you launched in August. Yes. No, we definitely did. It was some of these like last minute tweaks, the kind of last like hurdle that honestly ended up just taking a little bit longer because of everything that I'm just saying. Right. But it it was, it, Yeah. And then in terms, so that's supply chain stuff in terms of like the brokers that you mentioned and the distribution that you mentioned, like I'm imagining it's a different buyer at every store than, than the mixer buyer. I don't, I don't really know where, I mean, is it the same stores even like, or I wouldn't, I mean, I guess a bunch of them are, but how, how are you thinking about that like i i understand you you want to leverage as many of those like built up good relationships as you have are they all leverageable i guess is the question christina maybe you can take a stab at that since you're the relationship person. <laughs> <laughs> no it just happens that i've been more on sales that's why <laughs> these questions come back to me um, not yeah. that you're not jen i'm sure you're no, a relationship no, no, no. person too <laughs> Um, yeah, so no, you're right. It, it definitely doesn't always sit with the same buyer. And so we have worked with our buyers, um, going back to, and then look, they're, they're friends oftentimes to hand over to the other right. buyer. Um, and so again, because even though we launched, you know, the, the official rebrand on our, on our website was in March for the mixtures, it had been in process for you know, eight, nine months before that with our buyers and similar with the lemonade, even though some of the R&D pieces are getting tweaked and the sort of look and feel pieces are getting tweaked down to the wire. These are things that we started to sew beforehand. So a lot of them, you know, half the battle is being in distribution and then the Mm -hmm. other half is getting it bought onto shelves. So our distributors, we are working with um, similar distributors as well as adding some new on for new trade channels, but we are able to, with those 3,500 stores, um, use the same distributors and then sometimes have the same buyer and then sometimes move over to another category. But again, having some history, having data to point to, um, and having the buy-in from another colleague right. definitely, um, smooths Helps. out that process. Absolutely. And let's talk people a little bit yeah. everywhere. Yeah. 
Um, let's talk a little bit about this because I was talking with someone earlier and, you know, we were talking about how COVID, you know, if you are, you know, craft mac and cheese, you're good to go, right? If you are a fairly new product, but you are on the shelves, kind of like us in a lot of places, um, you're okay, but you definitely need to to do something to make sure that you're going into people's digital carts, which, you know, so Wegmans, for example, you know, foot traffic is way down in a lot of grocery stores and in Wegmans like others. And so how do you leverage Instacart, for example? Like where are those shoppers buying their food and how are they buying their food? Um, so if foot traffic is down and I'm at home shopping at Wegmans online, I'm not discovering a new drink or a new sauce um, unless it's being called to my attention somehow. And so I think a lot of us are trying to figure out how to make ourselves a little bit more um, pandemic proof um, because we're we're probably going to have maybe not a complete shutdown, but we'll probably see another big dip in grocery store traffic, I would imagine. Um, and so for you guys, how, I mean, were you already, were there retailers that were waiting for the lemonades or are you basically just now trying to get it on the shelf for next year? Like, were you, did it, did it affect your grocery store sales or were you just sort of thinking, okay, we're going to launch this. We're going to start with our people who already love us. Those are our direct consumers. We'll learn what we need to learn and then we'll focus on stores at a later time. Or are you pushing it out now and trying to figure out how to build awareness? So definitely on the lemonade product, the latter strategy that you mentioned, Allie, mm -hmm. we've always had this point of view of really trying to learn and get as close to the customer as possible as early on, be open to feedback. And then once we get sort of a critical mass of that feedback, then make changes versus making changes every time we we get feedback, because that can definitely lead yeah. to whiplash, yeah. um, especially when it comes down to taste, because it is so subjective. Yeah. Um, so we, we went the latter um, format, which was we said, let's launch through our, our direct customers. That's our our you're like you're saying, sort of super fans, captive audience in the place that we can have the quickest um, feedback loop happen. Mm -hmm. And then we also launched in retail in New York City. Um, right. So, you know, New York is its own funky spot for many things and, and grocery is one of them. So people still go out to their local bodegas, bodegas yeah. and to their um, sort of local natural grocer and, and buy during this time mm -hmm. and not do larger purchases um, for a lot of reasons. But we wanted to start just in those locations again, where we could develop a conversation, a dialogue with the buyer and really just see what would happen and have sort of that quick twitch learnings happening. But because of the um, other places that we are in, the the conversations, instead of them being necessarily 18 months ahead, we're finding that they're sort of six, 12 months ahead. And right. so now actually we are starting to have those and starting to 
put um, plans into place for a few months out to go into those larger retailers. And I think this is a part that a lot of people who are new to the food industry don't realize like we didn't at first is just how long the periods are between reset mm-hmm. and yeah. how long a review time period is, then a decision time period, then a reset is. So you actually need to be planning sort of 12, 18 months ahead for the larger retailers anyway. So I just want to break that down for listeners, like to give Whole Foods as an example. So when Jen says reset, that's just when the shelves are reset with the new products. Some products get taken off the shelf. Some products get you know put on the shelf. Some brands add SKUs, some take away. Um, if you can imagine being a, a grocery store and having, you know, hundreds or even thousands of stores, um, they'd like to have those look relatively the same from store to store. It makes it easier for the shoppers. It makes it easier for their internal systems. So a Whole Foods, for example, our reset date for refrigerated condiments is in the first week of April. That means that we need to present our new product for next April in July, this past July, and we'll probably hear what is going to likely be on the shelf in October. So that's why like when, when Jen's talking about just the, the calendar, the length, if you get accepted, let's say into Whole Foods in October, you are likely not going to be on those shelves until the following April. And of course, sometimes there's like a local program um, and they can fit you in a little sooner or they can make space on some shelves. But the bigger retailers with the bigger resets, it's it's definitely, you know, at least a six to nine month lag. Um, I just wanted to fill that in. Sometimes we shop talk and then I forget that we're talking about something I didn't even know a year ago. So um But I think, you know, what you were saying about the strategy, it's funny because in a way, like I remember having Mike Kerbin on from Vitacoco and he called it core than more. Like launching in too many stores at once is actually not great ever. I mean, it it very, very rarely works because there are inevitably things that need to get fixed and tweaked. And so in a way, you guys are, you know, by focusing on local and New York and getting to know what people like and what people don't like and what works and what doesn't work, you're creating sort of this really good story for then pumping it out to the bigger retailers. And since you have those relationships, you, you just, you're kind of, in a way, you're like a big kid, but in a way, you're kind of like a little kid again, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And and again, I think it allows you to have changes be less painful. Right. Um, and so there's nothing quite like testing and learning. And obviously that doing so on a smaller scale definitely makes you confident and sure when you pump it out nationally that what you're pumping out is, is the right product for your customer. Right. Okay. A couple more questions because um, I feel like we never really spoke about this. So Jen and Christina, how did you guys um, divide up the roles and responsibilities? Was it fairly straightforward? Has it kind of shifted over the last couple of years? And what does your team look like now? Jen, you want to take that one? 
Yeah, no, I, you know, and I think it's funny. I, a lot of people say like, don't, you know, find, like start a company with a friend. But for us, it really has been one of the best things. Well, I thought you guys were related, but. Oh, well, there's that know. too. <laughs> but Ross and Christina is one S. Well, so. we definitely feel that way now. Right. <laughs> well, you are now basically you're, you're married, if not sisters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely more than family. So <laughs> there's that, but I would say it's one of those things. I you think the great thing about Christine and I is we don't necessarily always agree on smaller decisions or how to come up to a certain thing or kind of exactly what to do, but we have such trust and agree on kind of the longer term and where we want to go. So ultimately that means that we're going to kind of come to a better decision and kind of a better outcome because we really kind of do have to like hash it out, if you will. Yeah. No, Um, I think that's great. And so from there we did um, divide the the roles, but again, like our team is small. We're we're still small. Our team is small. It's not everyone kind of takes part in a lot of different things, and especially Christine and I. Like we are constantly talking about stuff. We're texting, you know, like one two a.m. about all different things. But Mm -hmm. you know, from at the core, I do more of the finance operations. Christine does more of the sales and marketing. Um, And it's definitely one of those things. Kind of as you get bigger. You know, when when it's small, everyone is doing everything. Right. But then, kind of at each step as you grow, people can get a little bit more specialized and focused in what they're doing. Yeah, it's something that I that I think a lot about. I think part of the reason why we've done as a team as well as we have in COVID is because we're still small enough that you know we're on a morning Zoom with each other every day, and the ops folks are explaining to the marketing team like why we can't just change, you know, an oil in the next run. And the marketing guys are explaining like why it's important to spend, you know, on Kroger digital ads or whatever it is. And everyone, while everyone doesn't necessarily do everything, we all still kind of understand everything that everyone else is doing. And it makes me a little nervous, you know, like, I don't know, wise people say build the company you want to be in six months, you know, I'm nervous to change that dynamic um, because I want everyone to still be super connected, but it just, the bigger you get, the harder that is. So I guess my question for you guys is how are you keeping your team, you know, super connected to each other and what, what do you think the next steps are? I mean, are you going to have the same sales team doing the mixers as you are the ready to drink? Are you like, how are you thinking about growing the team? I guess. Christina, maybe take that one. Sure. Yes, is in the shortest answer to all of those questions. We are thinking of growing the team. We're thinking of growing the sales team. Um, and we're thinking of growing the sales team. We really do think right now from a portfolio approach. And I think some of that is because we have such a talent um, right now helming sales as well as such wonderful sales team members where everyone's just been flexible and and been willing to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And we've definitely hired most successfully for um, grit and sharpness versus experience so far. And I've covered in the experience with advisors and at different times um, kind of outsourced consultants. But we, we are growing the sales team more regionally at this point, still cross portfolio. Um, and then 
kind of just creating a little bit more um, support systems within those regions. So that that's definitely our next step. We do think that it is um, a ground game, especially the lemonade, as much as it is exciting to go into new categories that have higher velocity, which just means that people consume more of them in a day and therefore buy them more frequently and at higher um, volumes. As much as that's exciting from a business perspective, for sure, and a growth perspective, or even just a feedback perspective, because you learn so much more quickly how people use it, um, it definitely means that we need to be in store more. Right. And, and there's there, a yeah. competitive category as right. much as it is a more alluring category across the board. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I was going to say, it reminds me of, I had um, Gracie Dulick on, who's now at Zach's Mighty Chips, but at the time she was head of sales at Matcha. Um, was it Matcha Bar? No. Anyway, one of the Matcha drinks. And she was saying that she had been at Sir Kensington's and you know, you would That's go and you would. That was the Gracie you were talking about. That's yes. I we we we've mapped exactly against what you're about to say, Ali. Yes. Well, so you should say it. So no, no, I, no, I've been very long winded. Well, I don't even know what I what you oh, were well, saying. They, but... they <laughs> from condiments that sit in your fridge or on your right. pantry forever, and they kind of with every iteration got closer to a daily use you know, product that you would buy, you know, weekly from a grocery store instead of every few months or even a year with a ketchup and a mustard. They went to mayonnaise, then they went to um, salad dressings, and then they've gone to, you know, they went to other- Squeezy sauces. Squeezy sauces. They were saying, you know, the numbers look great as you get into more competitive categories, but the competition is also there. So in a way you can- you, you, your retailers expect less from you in terms of sales when you're in a sleepy category and they right. expect much more when you're in a great category. So therefore you need the manpower to support that. Right. And what Gracie was saying, which I thought was just a really, she was like very visually good at show, illustrating to the point, like, you know, you would, she would go and she would like merchandise the ketchup and the special sauce and it looked really nice and she would leave, you know, and no one would harass anything. Whereas like, doing, you know, the matcha in the ready to drink sort of grab and go set, she would literally merchandise and then walk away. And someone from some other ready to drink beverage company would be like putting her stuff in the back. Like she said, it was like throwing elbows. It was just super cutthroat in a way that she wasn't used to with condiments. So it is interesting. It's like, you're trading off, you know, I would imagine like you're saying people are drinking lemonade a lot more like they're buying it a lot faster than they're buying a simple syrup or a mixer. Um, but then you're, you're, you've got to be spending against like all of the other people that are kind of competing with you in that category. And I guess the expectation is much higher. Um, cause you've got to perform, you know, you've got to perform. That's interesting. That's fun. Um, so you you have mentioned um, in a couple of interviews, and then you just you said something really interesting that I think is really smart. Your core team you hire for grit and for you know figure it outness, um, but you bring in mentors and advisors and consultants, and I think that's a really good way to build, especially early, because if you hired any of those sort of um, super experienced people, first of all, that would be your entire budget probably. And B, they, they don't want to be boots on the ground. So you need kind of like a team of people who are just willing to get it done, but you need sort of strategy and, and leadership advice from 
people who have already done it. Um, so talk to me a little bit about the mentors and the advisors and the consultants and, and any takeaways you have um, or, you know, any good words of wisdom you've gotten. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think one of the things with that is that both Christian and I really have never been afraid to ask questions and say what we don't know. So, mm-hmm. and, and coming into this without having had food or beverage experience, we knew we knew nothing. Right. So we, we kind of went, like, we went and we're like, please tell us everything. And mm-hmm. we, you know, we didn't want to be shy or, you know, of course you're, you're talking to the people and then you're like, wait, what does that even mean? So yeah. from the beginning, we kind of just went and said, you know what, we're going to ask all the questions. We're not going to be shy about it. We're not going to hold back. And people have been so nice and willing to help us. And I think that's just been, you know, one of the things from the beginning. I don't know if it was surprising, but maybe a little. It's a nice industry. I I find it to be, I I don't know. I say this a lot too. I feel like, you know, you can call anyone in this industry and if they can spare the 20 minutes, they'll help you out for sure. Exactly. And it's it's funny. It's like, and, and I think the other thing to also think about is like, there are so many different stages it's yeah. like the first starting out, like developing the product is one thing, getting it into your first 10 stores, then a first 100, then a 1,000. And it's it's so specific kind of what you need to do at each of those stages. Mm-hmm. So it's also about being thoughtful of kind of like, who do you want to talk right. to to help at that right. stage? Don't call um, Obama for your senior year class rep contest. Right. (laughs) Exactly. And so, and then also really thinking like kind of what are the different areas, whether it be R&D, sales, operations, like who are sort of the best and the people to learn from from there. And then also ask those people to introduce you to others. So I think actually one of the great examples was, is another friend of yours, Zoe Feldman. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. And so Zoe has been such a great mentor to us. And then she actually introduced us to someone that has helped Kareen Rotam, who was at Pepsi, who really helped on the R&D. And it's like, you know, we now all just have such a great relationship. Then Kareen's introduced us to other people. And so really, it's been about kind of looking for who's kind of the best at in these specific things. Not everyone's going to have an answer to everything. Right. Um, and, and we also know we don't have the answers. So right. being very open to, to listening, to hearing others, but also feel, you know, we also have an idea of kind of what we want to do. Right. Um, that makes wanna, sense. Yeah. yeah. So it's really the balance of kind of like what's tried and true and how do we want to do things a little bit differently. Yeah. Okay. Last question, ladies. Christina, we're going to start with you. Best advice or what you wish you knew or what you wish someone would have told you? in 2015? Uh, um, One of the most inspiring pieces of advice that we've gotten and related to the question you were just asking about advisors and mentors um, was we were lucky enough to um, chat with Hamdi, another another Mm -hmm. Tabani name. And one of the things that he ended our conversation with after Jen and I came, we felt so honored to be able to sit with him that we came prepared with so many questions and, you know, from very broad to very specific. And we ended and he said, you know, Jen and Christine, I just want you all to walk away with one thing, which is by sitting with me, all you know is that it can be done, but I don't have the blueprint to how to do it. If I did, or if anyone did, people would do it all the time. 
there's no replicating anyone else's path. Every Mm -hmm. moment in time, every product, every customer base is unique. And so all you know is it can be done. And so I think there is, that was so inspiring to us because sometimes we focus so much on making sure we don't make missteps or learning as much as possible um, about what we don't know and short-circuiting some of the mistakes we could make um, by having wonderful advice, which definitely helps. But there is something to what Hamdi was saying and probably goes back to why we've had um, such success in hiring the way we have, which is you also just need to kind of give it a shot and go for it and try it out on your own. And so sometimes having team members who maybe haven't seen the tape formula five different times um, actually can be a real asset because everyone is just as passionate and is going to just push in directions that they don't know any better than to push into just like we have. And that's sort of where there can be a lot of generative power. So I guess the best advice is there's no blueprint. So you can just trust that it can be done and try to do everything you know how to um, do it. That's great advice. Jen, you're going to you're going to have to come up with something good cuz Christina <laughs> just kind of dropped the mic and That's true. <laughs> I didn't I just repeated someone else's great point. But you did it with such gusto. Yeah, I mean I think one of the things maybe that I I wish I knew in, you know, 5 years ago or even that I try and remind myself now is stuff's going to go wrong. Yeah. It's going to. Things are not going to be perfect. It's not the end of the world. Like, you know, I still remember and sometimes still do feel like, oh my gosh, how are we going to deal with this? What's going to happen? And it really feels like the end of the world. And then Mm -hmm. it's like, you go on, you figure it out, then you have the next problem. And you're like, that was so not a big deal. Why was I even sweating that? Yeah. So I I think that is a reminder because I think sometimes when you're so in it, problems or things that come up can really feel kind of like the end all be all. And that's not true. You know, yeah. you just have to kind of power through, you'll figure it out. You know, as Christina said, there's no like right way to do things. Mistakes happen and and, and you learn and from not, them. And you learn from them. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. All right, ladies, um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, everyone go to, is it just drink swoon? Taste swoon. Taste swoon.com um, and taste swoon. And start looking for the lemonades um, at stores near you. If you're New Yorkers, go buy them and bump up the velocities. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, Jess, thank you so much for engineering as always. And I hope I didn't go too much over, but they're used to me by now. And all of you listeners, um, thank you for listening. Thanks for all of your really good questions. I've actually gotten to DM and talk with a couple of you in the last couple of weeks, which has been really, really fun just getting to be a part of your journeys as you, um, you know, figure your products and your markets out. So thank you for including me in that. And I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.